You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host for today. This one is going to be a really fun talk because we're going to follow the white rabbit. We're going to take the red pill and we're going to do a deep dive on the sound of the new Matrix film, Matrix Resurrections. Neo and Trinity are back on the big screen after a 20-year absence, and although things have changed a lot in how the Matrix works, one thing that hasn't changed is the film sounds fantastic. It's huge, but it's detailed, and the sound pulls you in just as much as the visuals. I'm pleased to introduce you to two of the key members of the sound team of Matrix Resurrections. First up, we have Steph Flack. You will have heard her work on such films as The Bourne Identity, Eight Mile, and two of the Fifty Shades films. She was also the dialogue supervisor on Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions. And she's back on the train again, but this time as a co-sound supervisor on the new Matrix Resurrections. Welcome to Tonebenders, Steph. It's great to meet you. Thank you, Tim. Pleasure to be here. Also joining us is the film's other co-supervising sound editor and sound designer, Dane Davis. Dane won an Oscar for his work on the original Matrix. This is his fourth film in the franchise. Dane has worked extensively with Resurrections director Lana Wachowski on several films, including Speed Racer and the series Sense8, plus many more. It's great to speak with you, Dane. Welcome to Tonebenders. Great to be here, Timothy. Let's dig into the film, because this film is kind of eight film genres all in one. Everyone will be expecting the movie to have huge action sequences, and it does. It delivers on that. But the whole first act is basically a comedy, which is very new ground for a Matrix film. And at the core of this movie, its basic DNA is it's a love story. But there's also mystery elements. There's obviously a sci-fi element and superhero motifs. But it also turns into a zombie film at one point. How did you guys attack this kind of uh, changes in motifs throughout the film? Steph, did that affect your dialogue editing at all? or? Well, you know, the tone of the scenes did change with, with the different genres and also the size of the scene, you know, whether there was background crowd or whether it was an intimate scene or with the bots and things like that. So it did kind of reflect the tone and the, the feel did reflect the changes and the nuances in the film types. A big part of it is the background sounds are going to be played, uh, but also as the composers, because they come on long before we do, and, you know, they're building, the way Lana likes to do it is they're building the track uh, even before they start shooting. So that gives us some indication of the density of the score, but you know, a lot of it's just really about the textures and the density. So I think the dialogue has to be constructed with that in mind, right? And the kind of comedy, this isn't like slapstick comedy either. It's super subtle, right? The funniest scenes in the analyst's office are deadly quiet. So that performance... Everything about the breasts and all that is very, very exposed. I think that makes it particularly uh, tricky. As opposed to the zombie genre part of the movie, which is everything all at, at 11, you know, I mean, extremely wide-spectrum dense action, and you still have to get the, you know, the, the essence of those characters, the realness, the live quality of those characters. So, it, yeah, it's a big span. The original trilogy melted everyone's senses with the concept of bullet time. No one before they walked into the theater for the first Matrix had ever seen anything like it, really. It used the idea of slowing down, but the sounds that we heard weren't, like, pitch shifted down. We were used to hearing, like, when things got slowed down, 
but there was full frequency sound going on, which was something that I'd never really heard before. But the big help of designing those, I'm sure, for you, Dane, was that they were super short and there was no dialogue. But in this new film, bullet time hits an evolution and it lasts. There's like a scene that's like five minutes long of bullet time to get into the technical. I'm sure it was shot at a million different frame rates. So I don't know how sync sound would have worked for the dialogue. How, how did you even conceptualize what you're going to do when you saw that scene for the first time or maybe read it in the script? Because it would have been a daunting task, I imagine. It's a great scene. And obviously, uh, you picked up on a lot of the elements and the challenges with that scene. We were just actually talking about this and it was shot at a, a multitude of different camera speeds. And as you say, the difference between this and the earlier bullet times is this has dialogue woven through it. So it's a much more intricate and delicate dance between the dialogue and the effects and the music to be able to have all that information coming through. And it's a very subtle scene. It's not a bombastic scene. It's not a bombastic action scene. So it's very subtle and we have to allow the room, the oral space for the viewer to kind of be led through the scene without them feeling that they're being led, that, that there's not the background sounds clashing with the dialogue. So it was an intricate dance for Dane and I and, and I would cut it and give him many different bounces of it during the evolution of the scene for him to kind of place the background sounds, which, of course, the, the arcing and all that, which were... There was great experimentation with that between, you know, Lana's vision and, and Dane working it. But it was it was a challenging scene. Um, some of the angles had the production sound of the arcing on them, which, you know, rendered them totally useless. Uh, we cleaned them up as much as possible. Uh, we There was cheated dialogue, even just on the normal 24 FPS takes, because Lana doesn't always... It's not a given that she will she will use the sync sound. She goes, she scours all the material that she has and she will choose the best visual and the best sound take. And they're not all, always married. So she's, she's very thorough and very precise and it's extremely important to her about the intent and the emotion of the delivery each time. So everything is chosen perfectly. So you can't very easily always just go to an alternate take or just say, I'm going to loop this because there's so many nuances in that original performance. And what ends up happening is that, uh, you know, I have to scrape away the, the egregious elements of a original performance. And then I kind of structurally engineer and supplement that original performance with alternate takes, little pieces. It could just be a consonant or a vowel or uh, ADR. But, you know, it's never really throwing the baby out with the bathwater and just putting a whole new performance in. That's not going to cut it for her and it doesn't cut it for me. I mean, you know, none of us really like ADR and we just use it as a tool to harvest from. You know, it's just an arsenal of abstract vocals to pull from, to reconstruct and support her original vision of, of the performance. And you can't trick Lana. She has a kind of to uh, no. total recall of performances. Yeah, she's got amazing ears. And memory. Yeah. It's un like she'll pick out, no, that sound, that's, isn't that take five? That half of a syllable that's thrown in there? Yeah. See, look, so look at, oh, yeah, that is take five. No, yeah. Just some, you know, whatever. She described what we can't use. But I think you did hit it on the head that 
challenge. You know, bullet time was the very first sound design that I did because they did a, uh, the visual effects people, John Gaeta and his team did a seven second proof of concept in 1996. Uh, I was just talking with John at, at the ramp party about this and, you know, seven seconds, very expensive seven seconds. And they didn't want to show it to the studio without sound. So I had like two days to come up with the sound. But one of the key principles is that it's real time, right? It's subjective real time. When we go into bullet time, nothing's slowing down. It's just that Neo's real time, right, his perception real time is relative to you know what would be our real time, and so it seems very slow, but there's nothing slow about bullet time. So that was the trick to not ever make things sound pitched down. They're all expanded, but I had to find key sounds that had that feeling of of real time, uh, you know, sound turbulence and all that. So, but like you said, there's no dialogue through those scenes and the music, and I, I it was not difficult to make it all work with with the music. But in in super bullet time. Uh, as Lana calls this new scene, it is exactly the opposite, but it's still that feeling of consistent real time, right? Even though uh, the relative time scale from the audience's point of view makes everything seem super, super stretched. But because the dialogue's always going, I had to find sounds that could establish that feeling of a gigantic uh, relative difference in time that that would play not in the foreground, which was so unbelievably hard to keep that bullet <laughs> alive, right? And there were cases where the music was very delicate and we had to find little pauses in that dialogue to just hear the whoop, 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 whoop of the bullet breaking the sound barrier, right? As this sort of uh, intermittent rhythm almost. That was weird. And we had to sort of take that from how we approached the original bullet stopping because there's a million tracks in there of, you know, the the turbulence, you know, the sort of rocket engine sounds and jet sounds and all these different kinds of bullets and gun sounds. But everything got in the way. So that that was <laughs> extremely tricky. But and then in the end, right, you get to go into sort of uh, our own perspective and, and hear all the the bullet sounds. So we got to pay it off at least. And my favorite moment is that tink of the analyst's fingers grabbing the bullet an eighth of an inch from Tiffany's temple. Anyway, it was a fun sequence, but uh, we had spoken with Lana early on and she said this was the most difficult scene in the movie for her to to shoot and, and, to, and to cut and to, you know, make seamless. And, I, and, I, and she was, said that by way of warning us <laughs> how difficult it would, would be. And as Steph mentioned, in the background, you know, it's not just a continuous sound. Oh, my God, you know, there's all these different sparks flaring at different frame rates. So we had to sort of find a place to ramp even that stuff, you know, up and down to not be distracting but still not contradict what we saw. And kind of to punctuate as well. And, but, but in a very muted, subliminal, watercolour way. Absolutely. And unlike bullet time, which, like you said, wowed everyone, right? It knocked everyone's socks off when they saw it. This is so subtle. It's equally amazing an achievement. 
Exactly. Right? In visual effects storytelling. But for most people, it's going to go right by them because it seems so natural, doesn't it? It's very interesting the way that those things work. The hardest things are sometimes the things people don't even notice. Exactly. <laughs> it's such a beautiful scene. She she shot it on a real location in a warehouse, and it's all shot with natural light. And again, the same challenge was with the set, with the dialogue, with all the different frame rates, not slowing it down because it's just going to sound silly. And so getting the sync, cheating all these bits to kind of make it sound natural but look believable, you know. So that's always trying to find that happy medium where the audience just, you know, is in there and, and doesn't get arrested in any way. Especially with Neo's reactions and grunts. I mean, you know, your audience completely gets how tricky that is. You slow a human voice down, it's instantly a monster, right? And so Steph and I spent a lot of time in her cutting room trying to find bits and pieces of Neo that could ramp up and ramp down that were breathy that didn't sound like a, a beast, you know, a, a creature vocal. That was a, a huge pain, but, but in the end, but you had to have it, right? You had to have some of Neo's sound to stay subjective, because the whole scene is his point of view. And yet he's so silent, right? He's like one nine hundredth of real time or something. <laughs> the frame rates are unthinkably fast, right? <laughs> well, no one can accuse me of not doing my research for this talk with you because someone who's been on this podcast before and is a friend of the podcast is Lars Gunsel, who was one of the mixers for this. Ah! So I reached out to Lars and I asked him to uh, give me his perspective of the film and uh, maybe give me some insights on something I could ask you. And what he wanted me to tell you was that for Steph, it must have been a huge challenge to try and work around the soft performances and weave in and out of bits and pieces of ADR in the dialogue. For Lana, who is obsessed with production sound and original performance, it's way more difficult. She's super sensitive to any kind of changes. So it was an amazing amount of work to weave everything together from ADR, location, crowd recordings. And all of that work was perfect because if it didn't work, some of the subtle stuff in the ambiences and the effects tracks wouldn't be able to cut through. So the clean dialogue track was a precondition to the effects having a chance to cut through without stepping on anyone's toes. Absolutely. Were you feeling that while you were working on it? Because obviously your re-recording mixers noticed the great job you did. Well, that's lovely that, uh, that, that he was able to uh, articulate that. And, I mean, I've worked with Lana a lot and, you know, I, I know what to expect. And, and also it's something that I would offer any director and sound is that you clean up the dialogue as much as possible without eating into it and eroding it and, you know, making it, too artificial or anything like that because it's a finite sonic landscape that you have in a way. So I, I want to, I just want to present the dialogue and not take up any other space so that the music and the effects can sing. And, you know, there's nothing worse than having a really noisy background that can just play havoc with how you mix a scene. Neo and Trinity are always talk quite intimately in their intimate scenes. It's a very low signal to noise. And sometimes it's like basement. It's subterranean, their vocals in on the noise floor, right? So you have to kind of do a, a very delicate excavation to get their vocals 
up <laughs> and and still preserve that beautiful integrity of their delicate performances because, you know, they're breathy. They're so breathy. And, and so you just go through and you just put, you know, I when I shoot ADR, uh, at the end of every ADR session, I have this whole list of words that I have all the actors say. And I've made this list and it keeps growing and it has it's just different, it's words, but it allows me different combinations of vowels, diphthongs and consonants and little phrases. And I have them say them at various levels, various projections. So I can always pull from that too. And so especially with these really breathy things, I can just add little consonants in there at a very low nearly imperceptible level, but it gives it the clarity and the diction for the audience to understand because the story is so much, the dialogue is so much a part of the story. And if the audience loses that for a nanosecond, then their belief is suspended. They start going, what did I miss? Was it an important thing? I mean, it always throws me out when I can't understand something. And you know, I try to kind of rehash it to find that missing jigsaw puzzle. And you don't want that. You you really want the audience to stay in the moment, stay in the story, follow it through, empathise with the characters and, and ride with them in their arc through the film. And any time it's a dropout, it, it's just, you know, it can be catastrophic for their enjoyment and they may miss something really crucial. So it's just a matter of doing all this kind of subliminal surgery that is imperceptible. You know, like that's the thing with dialogue editing. You have no idea what's happened. And, you know, I always had this idea in the, you know, in old days that, um, you know, when we had dubbing charts and I was like, I wanted to have some calculation that you could put the dollar value in each region on the, on the, on the cue sheet you know, that this line was a $5,000 line, you know, it only took five hours to do or something. And this line is 20 cents. But you know, because nobody knows what goes into it, unless you look at the session and you see the 5,000 cuts, and the volume graphing and, and all the little pieces and all the plug-in gizmos that have gone on to fold everything in to make a really beautiful seamless line. Steph's sessions are taller than most effects sessions. All the work in the libraries that she maintains and seeing just a massive yeah. amount of source material. I, I have to say it, it's sort of finished that. I was at the after party the other night and one of the producers brought up that scene where Bug speaks very rapidly about the choice of the red and blue pills when she's talking to Morpheus. You know, Lana shot it and cut it and she wanted Bugs to perform that. And it, the, the fa as fast as the human physiology could possibly allow a person to speak all those lines, and, and she loved the tonality of it, but no one could understand a word. And this producer was saying, when I first saw that scene, I didn't understand one word of it. Oh, honestly, when somebody offered me these things, I went off of binary conceptions of the world and said that there was no way I was swallowing some symbolic reduction in my life. And the woman with the pills laughed because I was missing the point. What point? The choice is an illusion. You already know what you have to do. And now she completely gets it, and it's still hard. You have to listen carefully. But the amount of surgery that Steph had to do over the months to make that clear without ever seeing, seeming Frankenstein or contrived in any way, 
that one, what is it, an eight, five second long, that's a sort of crowning achievement stuff. Yeah, it's all these kind of sonic pixels. It's, it's just a Photoshop exercise with just all these little tiny pieces of, you know, a consonant from ADR, a vowel from another take. And, and the challenge is she's on camera the whole way. And because she's speaking so rapidly, she doesn't articulate all the words, right? So you've got the sync where there's missing maybe consonants or vowels run together without with a consonant missing. And so you have to put all that articulation back in. So to do that, obviously the line's going to run much longer, right? Because that's the problem, there's missing material and you've got a finite amount of sync, visual sync, to fit all this in. So you've got to, you've got to cut it in a way that you insert the material up until the point where it becomes visually out of sync and then you've got to tuck it back in, get in sync and then go out of sync for a little bit of time just before it becomes visually discernible again, catch up. So it's just these little kind of sync hooks that you have to play with beats every now and again. So you hit these things that are visually, uh, you know, that you can't get away with not hitting that visual mark. You know, because it's, ed- it's editing. I mean, the thing with editing is you, you keep editing. You know, like editing isn't, oh, let me just fix this because you get ear fatigue, right? And so you 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 do it to a certain point, pat yourself on the back, you know, think you fixed it and then you come back the next day and it's like, holy shit, what did I think I did here? And then you do the next pass. So it's just pass after pass after pass as you kind of, you know, mould it into the shape where you're satisfied and as a viewer, the, you know, it'll be sold to them. Yeah, it was at least a 25 to 30 cent line, right? I, yeah, I put a couple of zeros on that. Yeah, line. that's a ten thousand dollar bet, I think. <laughs> think of it, all the ADR time and all the discussions, right, and all the presentations and the rework. Oh my god! Yeah. The other thing Lars said to me, which I thought was kind of funny, was he said that the uh, the swarm scene near the end was the densest sequence he's ever had to mix and took a lot of time. And I was thinking, who could say that wasn't the densest sequence they've had to mix? Like that was. All hell was breaking loose on everything. You got motorcycles going nuts, glass shattering, every possible explosion, guns, everything. Dane, do you want to talk about how you even uh, started tackling something like that? Yeah, not to mention, you know, thousands of zombies. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a movie unto itself, honestly, that, that whole sequence. And visually... A big part of the scene, at least for me, was how the rules were being broken, right? The Matrix was breaking all of its own rules because the stakes were so high. And, you know, that comes across all the sort of jello, that's the word the Wachowskis always use, you know, jello time, the the gelatinization of cars and SUVs crashing. That, That is, in terms of the sound effects, one of the key layers that had to be articulated and had to get through that super dense uh, soundscape. Uh, we, we knew from the beginning that Lana's intention was to make that 
almost operatic. You know, there's other sections of the movie that were full-on operatic, like Neo's rescue from, uh, you know, from his pod. We, we knew that. And you have to approach a scene differently, right, when there's an orchestra at the volume of the conductor's level, you know, SPL, from conductor's position. But we knew in that whole the zombie scene that music was going to be dominating, so everything else had to find its sort of space through there. And that was a big trick. And, of course, the music was evolving through there. You know, glass is easy, right, because glass cuts through anything. Glass breaks, but we had to figure out how to minimize the amount of glass shattering Right, and, and some of it is Dopplering and that all helps. So we knew on the top end we had that, but the whole middle, as he starts to discover his electromental you know, capabilities, that sound had to pay off about 15 times in that scene, right? He pushes all of the uh, bots away. So on the bottom end, I, we needed to make room for that to read, uh, even though it's all, not all low end. Because I, I know from the earlier scenes with the electromental, you know, Neo Power that uh, the score would be very full range. So there are mid-range things in there, and there's a whole glass component, which I insisted on maintaining, you know, like the original glass sound of Neo touching the mirror. And, you know, because for me, that's, that is that membrane between real where his body is, you know, either either in the ship or in the pod, and the, and the virtual world. And I just thought it'd be cool to keep that. And uh, and Lana wanted a more of a concussive aspect to it, which eventually figured out in the in the big battle in the factory. So by the time we got to the zombie scene, uh, I had this thunder component, this phasing thunder, you know, and that was the key mid-range sound. Uh, and, but we just built the scene, and the vehicles were all cut in a, in a very realistic way first and then a very stylized, exaggerated way. But then we could see, especially with the motorcycle, that Lana was not interested in hearing the sounds of the vehicle engines, right? I mean, there were some key spots, like when the one guy turns into a bot and accelerates into the car. We had to understand that he was intentionally ramping into a car. He, he didn't let his foot off the accelerator. He's a bot, right? The Matrix was saying, kill them keep that accelerator to the floor. And so there are storytelling beats where we needed to hear the vehicles. But other than that, that wasn't a key component, not even the motorcycle. She, you know, yeah. we, we had to compromise on the motorcycle because obviously that's a thick sound and that competes with the strings. And, and it's a constant sound as well. Exactly, it's constant. So we knew all we could get was the revs. Uh, but the music people, as, jo as Johnny and Tom were evolving the music, it took a long time to take shape. And in the end, uh, we had Tom Tickfer, one of the composers. He was on the mixing stage with us. And, and he's also a great, very, very experienced director. And uh, in a way, he was an advocate. He was pushing uh, to make some space for some of the sound effects beats to get through. And for a composer to do that... That's a pretty rare <laughs> thing. You never hear the composer doing that. <laughs> <laughs> it's his filmmaker side. Right, that's his filmmaker side coming out. Exactly. Sometimes he would go, oh my God, that sound design. 
wait, wait, that sound design is so beautiful. And he was always in the front under the screen with Lana and James. He would walk around to behind the console, give me a big hug, and then he would go back to his position. And it's like, what sound designer, right, ever dreams about having, you know, those moments with a composer? But Tom really did appreciate it. You know, on the other hand, he writes really thick orchestral music. Uh, really well. It's very emotive, beautiful music. So you know, he always knew that he had kind of, uh, you know, he was the so in the soloist seat, essentially, as an orchestra. And I was just the percussion section, maybe, which is how Lana describes sound effects anyway, as, you know, as the drummer in the band. <laughs> but the gunshots, we tried making the gunshots also more abstract. That didn't work. So we had to keep the guns crisp, so they had to have their own little transient windows. So we worked that out. So another sound effect moment that I wanted to talk about, something that's new for this version of The Matrix, is the synthians. Is that what they're called? The the creatures made out of balls? The robots made out of like ball bearings kind of thing? Or is that exomorphs. the exomorphs? Yes, the exomorphs. So how did you go about building the exomorphs? <laughs> well, that was a, another giant challenge because... You know, all I had was drawings, basically, in the beginning, which the VFX department was graciously sending over to me or posting stuff for me so I could at least get a feeling for the texture. But very much like super bullet time, as opposed to bullet time, people are talking through all the exomorphic moments. Even when we're in, you know, the plan scene where where uh, Sati is describing what's going to happen in the future, right? And we're back in the, uh, you know, where the, where the pods are, the anomalium. There's moments where the exomorph is full screen and she, she starts talking again. Sati is talking on top of it. But I knew even in the introduction of, of Exomorpheus that the sounds would have to be descriptive of what they eventually look like uh, and not get in the way and not be intrusive. And I constructed quite a few layers on the way to that. And, you know, there's a whole lot of electromagnetic, you know, I've built all these crazy electromagnetic things, you know, and used dynamic mics going in and out of all these overlapping magnetic fields to get, you know, different kinds of the feeling of Doppler and heterodyning and, you know, the harmonics and all that stuff. So I, I played around with a lot of that, but again, a lot of that is in the vocal range, right? And some of it's very deep, and I knew we wouldn't have the, the volume to make the really deep frequencies work, so I didn't have that. And I knew that ultimately you would see these individual little balls. We didn't know what color they'd be because that was always changing. Different kind of metallic silveriness versus black. And as we're going through the temps, I was building this, and the Foley people at some point came in and they started experimenting with the contact, you know, when he would touch stuff and the balls. And they recorded a bunch of really cool things with, uh, I don't remember, you know, ball bearings and all these other things and BBs. And then I started integrating some of that into what I was building using some external programs and various plugins. But the trick was to keep out of the way and still suspend your disbelief. You know, so it had to be that having a million little metal balls all vibrating and oscillating, you know, could not make that much sound. Even when he's in the animalium and he's jumping and doing all this crazy stuff, it had to stay within that not very loud uh, dynamic range. 
you know, in the end, I think it was some of the Foley artists' work that sells it, right? Like when they shake hands, you know, you could hear all of my little sounds sort of going into it, but the dominant sound is some of that Foley of little balls. My favorite sound in the whole movie is when the exomorph is on the uh, uh, Rapunzel Tower, right? With Neo, and he just walks over and puts his hands off screen on the metal, you know, banister. And you just hear that shink, shink sound. To me, that is cinematic oral storytelling, right? At its best, because you heard all this little Morpheus. Oh. As he gets up, and that all came out really cool, right? As he forms out of that pile and puddle of ball bearings. But when he puts his hands, it all just seems completely real to me. So I, I'm very grateful to that uh, beautiful Foley that they, they did for all of that and for the whole movie. Did the uh, exomorphs get any special dialogue treatment? Yeah, they did. Um, that was done by Matthias Slempert. Well, he was our dialogue and music mixer in Berlin. Dane can probably explain a little clearer. Well, like everything else, right, when, you, when you're doing voice processing, clarity is the fence that you can't go through. Uh, I've done a lot of creature vocals, and I, I think I did all the voice processing in the movie except that, because I knew I just couldn't take the time doing it beforehand. It would always be decisions that would be made on the dubbing stage with music in place, with the effects in place. And that worked out great. And Matthias was experimenting with different things. Uh, in the end, I think it came out magnificently because it had to have a metallic resonance. It had to have a particularization to it, right? But it also had to sound like it wasn't a, a, a mouth made out of flesh, <laughs> you know? That was opening and closing to articulate. It was, it was hard, but first and foremost, he had to be... Completely understandable. Not all seek to control. Just as not all wish to be free. What is that? An exomorphic particle codex. It's pretty new. It gives programs access to this world within limits. Limits are the domain of the limited. Morpheus. Thank you. It was my honor. It's essentially harmonically shifting his track and then texturizing it so that you feel a sort of a, a harmonization in there, a thickness, right, from those enharmonic uh, frequencies overlapping and a, and a little bit of delay on it that gave it some size. And that's what I love about that, yeah, especially with the other exomorph, Quillian. You, you feel the volume that is described or, you know, outlined by all those little balls. You feel it when Quillian speaks. Uh, you know, and and it's very metallic. I think that's an amazing achievement and is perfectly clear. So that came out good. With Morpheus, he, he had, uh, you know, we had to also be very masculine and strong and deep, right? Morpheus, whether he's exo or not, has to have this sort of embodied animalness to it. Matthias was able to keep the the power of that body, even though it was, didn't exist. You know, but what, when I was developing the sound, something that I had to keep thinking of, and I, and I think on the stage, remind is, you know, 
my hand and my finger is uh, everything. When I touch my laptop, that's almost completely empty space. The universe is virtually, to a gigantic degree, empty space. So it's the same thing as the exomorphs, right? It's just that every atom has this shell of electrons that bumps up against the shell of electrons from some other atom, giving us the illusion of solidity. But there is no solidity in the universe, really. So for the exomorphs, it's just a more visible obvious version of being all empty space. So when he talks, you have to imagine the breath coming through some lungs. You know, obviously the whole thing is, doesn't make any sense because he has no vocal cords. There's no trachea that you can see. But it works. It totally works. You don't think that while watching the movie, of course. As Dane was saying, we couldn't go too far because we had to retain the clarity. But on top of that, you had visuals with not really a super clear mouth because it was all the little ball bearings and everything. It was vaguely divine, divine mouth, greater than vaguely. But so it's not like you're watching a hard sink on a mouth. And so if it's a little bit amorphous sound-wise, you can still put it together. So that was just a, another factor in how far we could take it in terms of intelligibility and discernibility. So what you're saying is the mouth of Morpheus was amorphous? <laughs> yeah. What's a plosive without lips? Yeah. I mean, really, <laughs> what's there to plosive? Um, I have lots more questions for you, but I, I, we're running out of time. So maybe if I can uh, kind of merge a few questions into one for both of you. Can you try and describe how different it was in terms of either tools or uh, your approach between the last Matrix film you worked on and starting on this one? Night and day. Um, obviously, uh, what, uh, Reloaded and Revolutions were 2003, and now this is 2021. So that's 18 years of evolution of plugins and all the tools available to clean up dialogue. One of the great things, I think, is auto-align post to be able to phase both mics together. And in the old days... Sometimes I would hand phase and invert and, and do all that kind of stuff where necessary, but you didn't really have the time. That has just been a night and day for the starting board to be able to have, have those mics phase to start with a, a really rich, robust sound. And then, then from there, you can quickly isolate the problem areas and work on them. On the other films, I was only the supervisor, Julia Avershade. She was the uh, ADR supervisor. So we worked in conjunction together, but still it was separate. And now because I'm doing both, I can, I can easily do the microsurgery and not throw the baby out with the bathwater and just I know what I want to loop. I know what I want to achieve. I can cut to the chase kind of thing on, a, on an ADR stage and I know what pieces I want. I don't care if it doesn't necessarily, it's not sync. I just am trying to find the tonal compatibility, the textual compatibility. Sync is not crucial for me because mostly I can sync it. They're the greatest tools. The other one is being able to clean up backgrounds and to do all the microsurgery that you can do with RX. I mean, you know, I love going into the spectral, the spectrogram and I have it set on five million colours 
you know, I love visuals. And so I just love the colors. I don't want the blue and the orange. I just want everything so I can see the temperature of everything and I can just go in and you can get lost in there. It's a rabbit hole. <laughs> and um, so in terms of that, you can make it so much better than you could before. You can present it to the stage where they have more time to do their job instead of cleaning it up like in the olden days. Also, one of the developments of in-group ADR recording because of COVID is that we, um, I record at uh, a place in Burbank and they have 11 isolated rooms. And so I can have all these actors in these rooms and I can even have actors at home. So I can record everybody on a combine track, which is fine, but I don't necessarily use the combine track. And then I have everybody isolated. So if somebody is too proud, too loud, too annoying, they can either be cut out or volume graph. Nothing is married. So there's so much freedom. It means a hell of a lot more work in terms of cutting, but you have so much material. And so for the fight scenes, I can have everybody just doing a fight scene and, you know, here you'd be this character and just make noises all through the scene. I don't care about sync. You know, sure, be motivated by the sync, but use that as a springboard to try different things, you know, different types of you know, whether it's an offensive or, or a defensive thing, whether it's a long yell. And so I just end up with all this fabulous material, which then takes a million years to cut, but it makes it so much better. The quality is so much better. The mix will be so much better because it can be so precise and so detailed and so beautiful. It may take a little longer to mix as well, but there's a greater freedom in the mixing because like in the Similate cafe scenes, we have so much beautiful control over the people in the room, in the cafe, which starts out quite busy, but we can bring it down in a very subliminal way that's not just a big fader move or it's not the whole group coming down, you know, so things have can have natural entries and natural exits and, and we can pare things down in such a way that it's just, it's subliminal because it's so natural. So all my styles and techniques are, are constantly evolving. You know, I'm always looking for a way to do something different, something better really and different. I'm open to all ideas. So, so yeah, over that 18 years, things have changed a lot in terms of the dialogue and the ADR. Okay, Dane, your turn. Uh, over the last 18 years, how did your approach evolve? I'm always into uh, analog emulators. I was on the first movie. I tried to do everything as digital as possible, but everything had to sound very analog, right? So the, the analog emulators, like overload emulators, were super crude in those days. Oh, my God. Everything was crude. <laughs> by, right by today's day, every, all the software I used was hopelessly crude. But now, it's a, an amazing array of very natural sounding tools. So I went back to the original recordings that were never used for the wishes, and, and some that were used and completely remastered them. And for the hits, I used all of these amazing new tools that we have today. I basically made all new hits and punches and thuds and body falls and impacts of all kinds uh, with these new tools. So it has a degree of, of 
energy, a degree of, of dangerousness that I really couldn't even get right before. Sorry, can I just stop you for one second? Are you, you're saying you took the original recordings you made for the first movies and then remastered them with today's tools. So they're the same bass sounds, just kind of with uh, modern processing. Right. That's super cool. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, right. For, for a storytelling logic. Mm-hmm. It couldn't sound like a completely new kind of hit. There's a bunch of new stuff that's used in there, but the, the, the basic skeleton of it, it had to sound related to those fights. It's the Matrix. It had to sound familiar, you know, nothing like a little nostalgia, right? <laughs> like Morpheus says. So they are really very different sounds in the movie. The way we mix them are, uh, to some extent, different. But it connects back to that. Uh, Lars and I and, and uh, you know, Jeremy Pearson and Laurent and all the people that cut in those effect scenes and uh, Albert Gasser cutting a lot of that stuff. You know, we had fun trying to balance between sounding familiar and sounding, wow, new. Uh, again, it had to connect to what people were familiar with and what the characters were familiar with. I can't thank you enough for talking to me about all the great work you did on this film today. Congratulations, and uh, hopefully we can talk again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Tim. It's been fun. Thanks, Tim. It was an absolute pleasure. Film Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H, or leave us a tip. Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? ToneBenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.